Money FM 89.3, the best of your money. Money and me on your money, only on Money FM 89.3. Welcome to Money and Me. I'm Michelle Martin. In hopes of reviving the overall gloomy sentiment, China's unveiled a package of relief measures to support the property sector that accounts for more than a quarter of economic activity in the country. Just last week, China said more residents would qualify as first-time home buyers. It would give them access to cheaper mortgage loans and allow them to borrow with lower upfront payments. But will the measures as a whole be enough to bring optimism back to China's embattled economy? And what kind of impact could this have on emerging markets as well? On the same note, China is also reportedly preparing to launch a $40 billion investment fund backed by the government to subsidize its semiconductor industry. Will this help China achieve self-sufficiency when it comes to semiconductors vis-a-vis the U.S.? In separate news, we're also going to take a closer look at possibly one of the biggest IPOs in IPO news in a long while, the $52 billion IPO of Arms Holdings, the chip design firm looking for a $52 billion valuation. Will it live up to the hype? All that coming your way. And the thoughts of Arun Pai, investment team of uh, Monks Hill Ventures is where Arun sits. Good morning, Arun. Good morning, Michelle. Great to speak with you. Let's start with China and its property stimulus measures. A Bloomberg intelligence report that tracked Chinese builders gained nearly 10% yesterday. That is the most in a month. Now, we know that China's property developers have been heavily indebted and we've seen depressed valuations uh, among them, Sunak China Holdings. But we've also seen, uh, you know, a real soaring, a real recent rally. Sunak soared 68%. China Evergrande Group closed up 83%. Now, some say that uh, these di- distressed developers are soaring because of a wave of speculative buying. Arun, what do you make of China's latest stimulus measures? As a whole, will this be enough to inject some optimism uh, when it comes to gloomy sentiment as a whole with regards to China's property sector? Yeah. So, uh, look, I mean, firstly, this is a massive problem for China, right? I, I can't stress that enough. You were mentioning real estate constitutes like 25, 30 percent of China's GDP. To give it, uh, like, in terms of asset value, China and the U.S., both countries together form about 40% of the global property value, which is around 85 trillion. And this was a bit of a shocking news to me, wherein China is actually uh, home to more of the world's real estate market asset by value than even the US. Wow. So, uh, you know, it's something like 42, 43 trillion dollars worth of asset value just sitting in real estate in China. So this is obviously a gigantic problem that's been brewing for a really long time on the back of all these macroeconomic trends that we've talked about for a while on your show, right? Mm -hmm. Wherein interest rates went 0%, yada, 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 everyone took on too much debt. This recent, uh, so then then there are two aspects to this. Firstly, uh, China being controlled more from the center. Uh, They know this is a big problem. They've been trying to uh, really, well, first they tried to ensure that the property developers' debt will not 
follow through into the rest of the economy. So they try to do like the whole triple line, right? Wherein to ensure that no property developer can take on too much debt. Uh, they try to control their various provinces from trying to issue too many bonds uh, all or and or just basically just continue to sell property at absurd valuations to trying to fill their coffers. So they've been trying a multitude of things, and that led to this massive hangover that we've kind of been going through the last couple of years, coupled with rising interest rates. So that kind of like set up for the fact where, if you look at China Evergrande, right, you were mentioning that, this was a stock that was trading at anywhere between, say, 15 to 25, 15 to 30 Hong Kong dollars uh, prior to 2021. Then started coming the big collapse, right? Interest rates started spiking up. There was a big slowdown in global economies, obviously the COVID pandemic, et cetera. The share prices were halted for close to a year and a half uh, at a price of roughly, I think, around 1.7, 1.65 or something. When the market finally opened, the share price cratered again. So currently it's sitting at like 75 cents, okay. like Hong Kong dollar cents, mm-hmm. right? And this is after the rally that uh, you were mentioning. Mm-hmm. So when it's at such distressed levels, I don't quite think, you know, thinking about it like, oh, the share price went up 70% or 50% or whatever is quite reasonably meaningful unless you're those day traders, speculative people who are just sitting and going in and out, hoping to make a quick buck. I think the bottom line is, if you look at the financials of these companies, they are abysmal, right? So unless there is a massive capital inflow uh, on the back of basically the Chinese government, because there's no one else that's big enough to try and support these uh, institutions, uh, unless that's going to happen, which will obviously lead to massive dilution for ordinary shareholders, uh, it's very difficult to gauge how this thing will suddenly turn around. So, you know, 20,000 feet view in the air kind of policy over here. A couple of measures that have taken place by the Chinese government fully required by this uh, extremely sputtering vertical in the Chinese economy. Will that be enough just yet? I don't think so. I think uh, uh, taking uh, terminology from back in 2008, uh, what the Fed and the Treasury had to do, like a bazooka would be required Mm. uh, to ensure that this this vertical can uh, come back up on its feet. By extension, with that logic, do you think that, you know, we could see other property developers having new crises in spite of these uh, measures? So uh, from an overarching thesis, yes. That being said, though, not, not trying to be like fear-mongering or anything, this is nowhere nearly... So obviously the asset class is really big, yeah. but the interconnectedness that used to be there between investment banks in the financial sector, which nearly brought down the global economy, that's not as prevalent in this space, right? It's just a bunch of very large, poorly thought-out actors who took on too much leverage, uh, not just on their books, but set up these massive SPVs and all of that shadow banking stuff that's been happening. Uh, they could move all of this off their books, raise capital through various trusts and wealth management products and structured notes, etc., to keep this game going. Now, that's kind of like been brought to a halt. So a lot of deep cleaning is required. But that being said, though, I do believe that the Chinese government has more than enough firepower to ensure that they could pull this through. And I don't think it's going to be have this huge contagion effect necessarily the way uh, when mess ups happen in the financial sector, 
it just carries over to everyone else. I, I don't think that kind of contagion will take place in the property sector. Interesting. What do you think it's going to take for China to turn things around in this sector? You mentioned a bazooka. The bottom line is it'll have to be a lot more capital and they will have to set up like good entities, bad entities, right? They'll have to go up to all of these large developers. I mean, take the playbook from what worked in the past, right? Like go up to all these developers, say, look, we know what you guys have done, which was you guys leverage yourselves too much, overextended yourselves too much. This is a big problem. We have to wipe out a whole bunch of not just the equity guys, potentially even like bondholders. The government will backstop certain distressed assets that we will carve out of your entities. Uh, Government will backstop it because that is what's going to be required at the end of the day. And then let time take its course. Uh, we release uh, these like these positive measures that they released just now, where you know first-time property first-time pro- property buyers have flexibility in terms of interest rates, etc. Second-time property developers also there's all there's all this news that's floating around where second-time property de- second-time uh, property buyers have certain freedoms which they priorly did not have. So all of these things will take time to course correct. It is at the end of the day, it is a growing economy. It's a massive population. Mm. A lot of people moving from. Third 30 or 40 or 50 or cities into, uh, or even from like the more rural areas, I should say, into cities across the board from first year to fifth year. So yeah. there is going to be an inherent demand for property. Uh, I don't think that's going away anytime soon. Asian cultures, Asian values, where you would rather buy property and have a roof over your head that you paid for. I think all of that, those long-term economic fundamentals are there. Mm. It's just, uh, you know, there are always, it's not going to be a straight line up to the top right. Right, there are going to be these blips. This blip is a lot larger than other blips in the past, especially in Chinese property. Uh, it's just going to take time and a lot of capital from the government to fix this. Yeah, what a blip! More like a tsunami <laughs> of a wave, right? I mean, it's push defaults, developer defaults to to some becoming mere penny stocks. So, okay, so my takeaway is: is this a sector worth buying right now for investors? It's a no for speculators. It might be a yes, um, and China's property troubles are not completely solved. Okay, Arun, let's look at China's $40 billion state fund into chip investments. Uh, China reportedly preparing to launch that investment fund, backed by its government, meant to subsidize its semiconductor industry. It is trying to play catch up with the US and other rivals to dominate the high-end chip production sector. This $40 billion investment is likely to be the biggest of three launched by the China Integrated Circuit Industry Investment Fund. Quite a mouthful. I'll just call it the big fund from now on. Um, (laughs) Help us understand how the big fund has been helping the semiconductor sector in China so far. You know, just yesterday I was reading this news where Huawei released their uh, latest phone. It's called the Huawei Mate 60 Pro also quite a mouthful. Let's just call it the Huawei phone. So (laughs) evidently the Chinese are not the greatest in naming names. But shockingly enough, this had a seven nanometer chip created by SMIC, which is the Kirin 9000 chip. And upon breaking down the phone, the speeds capable of this phone was even more than 5G. This was something that obviously the US uh, and let's just call it the West was extremely afraid about and hence all of these restrictions to ensure that China doesn't have the latest and greatest technology in this space. If this is actually true, and and there are all these YouTube videos and uh, proofs that this has actually been created, I think just, I was reading the news today early morning, uh, this has caused huge uproars in the US. 
where everyone's like, okay, now we just need to put a blanket ban on any kind of technology being sold to Huawei and SMIC, right? Mm. So it's just going through the works, I think, in, in the Senate and uh, someone in the Republican Party went up and told Biden this. This is actually honestly quite shocking, right? Because, uh, and I know, I know we've discussed this topic uh, a while ago on your show, the whole idea or thesis was that the entire semiconductor supply chain is so complicated from ASML in the Netherlands to the various foundries that are present in Taiwan and the amount of time it took Taiwan to become the uh, leading semiconductor factory of the world. It actually should not have been possible at such an early stage mm. for China to be able to come up with this. Like in my view, in the long, long run, and that could be anywhere from like, I don't know, 5 to 15, 20 years, with these tens of billions of dollars of capital investment, that was kind of like the time frame that I had in my mind it was going to take for China to kind of like just start catching up with uh, uh, with Taiwan and uh, the West. But if this news is actually true, mm. it's just phenomenal. And this, be it 40 billion, is probably just going to be the first. This will just, this green shoot will just lead to even more capital being deployed into the space, I feel, uh, knowing fully well that, you know, there is some kind of inherent capability within China to be able to pull this off. Yeah. So, I don't know. I, I expect a lot of news in the next, uh, just later today or the next couple of days, I feel, Michelle. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to look up Mate 60 Pro. So, basically, this phone was made with a chip that is a technological breakthrough that couldn't have been done without U.S. technology, shall we say. With the current export restrictions, it should not have been able to have been manufactured by SMIC, which is the local Chinese equivalent of uh, the Taiwanese uh, semiconductor giants, right? This should not have been able to take place. Speeds if like faster than 5G, 7 nanometer chipsets. This should have been much longer in the future, uh, if at all, if, if at all it was possible. But, and Huawei hasn't released exactly what is powering this phone. Uh, they've not mentioned the, the specs. So they've kept it all very hush-hush until a bunch of people bought this phone, took it apart, and wanted to prove uh, that to, to the U.S. or to whoever else that uh, there are these in-house capabilities present in China, which is extremely surprising. So, Either that uh, or export controls need another look at. Uh, or that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, two sides to the coin, right? Like, <laughs> so interesting. That's a really fascinating nugget there. Arun Pai is from the investments team at Monks Hill Ventures joining me here on Money and Me. Let's take a look at what China's economy uh, means for the rest of the world. We talked a little bit about the distressed developers, the wave of speculative buying, but as a whole, uh, when we look at China's economy, emerging market currencies and stocks, I understand, uh, fell. We saw a fall after we, uh, there was news of disappointing data from China. And some say this means that there's heightened investor anxiety around China. So the MSCI's gauge of developing currencies sank 0.5%, headed for its biggest drop in nearly a month. When you look at China's economy and in terms of knock-on effects, how do you think um, it could impact emerging economies? Yeah, you know, like this famous phrase, right? When America sneezes, the world catches a cold. Yeah, yeah. Uh, just like paraphrasing that, <laughs> when China sneezes, uh, APAC or ASEAN <laughs> catches a cold, right? <laughs> so it being the largest economy close by, it will naturally have 
reverberating effect on back home, like over here in Singapore and emerging economies around us. A couple of things, though. Firstly, in terms of the emerging currencies, there there is another big factor that's playing uh, a role over here, which is the Fed has pumped up rates to over 5%. Naturally, if I am a very large fund manager sitting anywhere across the globe, and I can basically earn 5% in U.S. treasuries, and the emerging market economies are not growing exactly completely gangbuster, they're not going to be able to raise their interest rates that much higher than the Fed. There'll naturally be that interest rate differential that's lowering, that's the, the gap is reducing. And if I'm a large fund manager, I'll just park my assets in U.S. dollars and earn that 5% uh, uh, till kingdom come, right? So mm-hmm. there's a lot of like money outflow that's happening from emerging economies to mm-hmm. uh, the U.S. dollar on the back of all of this global slowdown and everything else. So that's like one overarching factor. That being said, though, specifically in ASEAN, I think the macro story for Southeast Asia is actually the strongest across the globe in terms of GDP growth rate, in terms of rising middle class, uh, digital penetration in uh, the middle income households across this region, etc. So there's a lot of like good things that are happening over here. And in all fairness, in even if like the Chinese economy is slowing down, it's not like China used to buy particularly much and like particularly many things from this region. Okay. I think the biggest effect that we are facing or the hope that we had was when Chinese, when the China economy the borders open up post the COVID pandemic, uh, now that's kind of like petered away, we were expecting a lot more of Chinese tourists and that tourist dollar to boost the economies over here. Right. And that has sadly not happened. So I think that's a big factor or that was one big gap that a lot of economies, especially places in like China and Indonesia, are facing or suffering from right now. Great point there. Just on the point of tourism, because I will be hosting a a panel on, on global tourism in just a while. I was noticing that in the past you would see Chinese tourists make it around the world in groups and increasingly what we're seeing is individual Chinese tourists versus group tourists, you know, and that is impacting uh, a lot of operators in a big way. All right, so emerging markets, opportunities and risks in view of China's sputtering economy we've looked at. I want to change gears right now and look at maybe one of the biggest IPOs of this year, high-profile chip designer Arm. Finally going public, the SoftBank Group's Arm Holdings launched the roadshow for its huge blockbuster IPO. Just earlier this week, we were talking about it, in fact. Um, and the chip designer trying to convince investors it's worth as much as $52 billion in this year's share sale. Ten companies, including the big guys, Apple, Google, NVIDIA, Samsung, they've disclosed they are considering acquiring stakes in Arm. Are you sold on Arm's value, Arun? Look, it's a testament to the fact that I think like 10 of ARM's customers, as you were mentioning, uh, have agreed to be like, uh, at least the news that I read, they've actually agreed to be the cornerstone investors. Uh, T. Rowe Price, uh, one of the largest asset managers in the world, there are confidential discussions right now going on for them to uh, also be the main cornerstone investor in this offering. So uh, obviously, uh, the investment banks are doing their job. Masa San can potentially, hopefully, heave a sign of relief that they can finally IPO this thing, right? Because it, taking a step back, uh, going back, I think, a year or a couple of years, the idea was that SoftBank had, was trying to sell ARM to NVIDIA in about a $40 billion purchase price. 
Yes. Uh, that would have been the largest chip industry takeover ever, et cetera, et cetera. But then obviously regulators come cra- came crashing down because NVIDIA already has a pretty massive monopoly in this space. So I think it was last year that NVIDIA just walked away from it. Uh, that led to a huge collapse in uh, SoftBank's price, big uh, share price, because everyone was like, okay, there's no exit coming over here. This is going to be just, you know, stuck in the portfolio. What do we do about it? Uh, so from from that perspective, I think uh, the biggest winner is this. If, if it even if it doesn't come up to like the you know 50 billion whatever mark mm-hmm. and comes even close to the Nvidia purchase price point, that's still going to be a massive win for SoftBank and Masasan who will still own 90%, by the way, right? Oh. So about 10% of it be, is being sold to the public market. And you can imagine over time that SoftBank will keep uh, reducing their equity ownership. Uh, so I think that will be a huge win for SoftBank. It'll be a huge win for just the market, be it investment banks, be it venture capitalists like us, and just mm. generally like everyone in this space, right? Because what we've seen in the past about a year, mm. the public markets have just been shut. There's been no big IPO. I think the last one was... Uh, a listing by Johnson & Johnson's uh, consumer health spin-off yeah. for about 4 or $5 billion. So there's really been nothing. There's been a very, there's been a huge lull in activity in the primary issuance market space. A lot of great companies are still private, waiting for this IPO window to open up. And hopefully that's going to be ARM, right? Uh, for, for your listeners, ARM is something that, you know, most people don't know about because it basically powers the inner workings of a phone, right? So there are two main verticals of it, selling the blueprints to design the microprocessors that go into your uh, chipsets in your phone. And the second is it just licenses a bunch of technology, uh, which ensures that software programs knows how to communicate with chips in a very energy efficient manner. And as we all know, people like us, you know, who use our smartphones, don't want to reveal how many hours per day, mm-hmm. but quite extensively, we want the battery life to be as long as possible. And ARM is basically one of the key uh, businesses that ensure that that happens. So uh, obviously, extremely relevant technology. Uh, they've got a massive foothold in this space. There is one uh, couple of competitors like Qualcomm and NXP who are trying to develop a competing technology called oh. RISC. Okay. Uh, that could potentially reduce the industry's reliance on ARM. But look, that that's uh, still a while away, right? I, I think the kind of moat that NVIDIA and ARM have created around their business, it's here to last for a while. And which is, you could see why NVIDIA is looking to buy out ARM to begin with. So I, I think putting all of those things together uh the company itself, I mean, uh, until we have like much, like, until we can see uh, a lot more of the public filings of the business, uh, it looks pretty good. Uh, really solid business, solid competitive mode. And just generally being the optimist, I really hope that it does well uh, so that the rest of the economy, at least where we deal with in the venture capital space, can benefit from it. And just from the venture capital perspective, is there, has there been a lot of interest in this chip space recently? It's very, well, from a personal perspective in Southeast Asia, probably not. And that's because the amount of capital required for making these investments is massive. Right. And typically, venture capitalists don't get involved in hardware. But if you go to like the larger guys in the US and Israel and China, there's been tremendous amounts of capital that's being deployed into the space. I mean, AI, generative AI is obviously extremely hot. The value that's been accruing from that has been primarily to the semiconductor chip space, where we can obviously see how NVIDIA stock has performed. So a lot of different people 
are trying to, uh, you know, attack that castle that uh, NVIDIA has created. So, and ARM has created. So naturally, a lot of capital is flowing into the space, but not necessarily from uh, the more nascent venture capital industry in Southeast Asia, I would say. Got it. Thank you so much for the great insights. We've been looking at ARM's listing, which is expected to buoy the IPO market globally. And we've been talking China's economy as well with Arun Pai from the investments team at Monks Hill Ventures. Thank you so much, Arun. Thanks, as always, for having me, Michelle. Before acting on the information on Money FM, please consider if it's suitable for your own investment objectives, financial situation, and risk tolerance. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at audio.sg or download the audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O, audio at the App Store and Google Play.